Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. That was just a great aha moment because all of these barriers to change that I write about that I've studied, none of them are curable, right? We'll always be present by us. I can't take a pill and make that go away. You know, I'll always be a bit forgetful. I will always, you know, prefer the path of least resistance. I will always struggle with confidence in challenging situations. And so if these barriers are part of human nature and not curable, then instead of thinking we need sort of a, a one month or a one time solution, I think the right way to think about behavior change and durability is thinking about tools and tactics and techniques that will help us manage and treat those barriers successfully in a way that's not burdensome, but that is, that is constant. That was Katie Milkman on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com slash POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash POTC. ZocDoc.com slash POTC. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. 
Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash P-O-T-C to get 5% off your entire order. Psychologist Off the Clock is happy to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. With Praxis, you can really transform your clients' lives by learning how to effectively promote lasting change with evidence-based training. And they're really the premier provider in continuing education for clinical professionals. Praxis has both on-demand courses as well as live online courses. They have beginner offerings like Act One from Matt Boone or more advanced offerings like Act Immersion with Steve Hayes. Some of their live online courses include classes in dialectical behavior therapy, superhero therapy, and act with parents. You can get a coupon code for Praxis Continuing Education on our website, offtheclockpsych.com, for some of their live offerings. And we can really attest to the quality of Praxis. We've both participated in it ourselves and have seen its benefits in our clinical work. So visit our offers page at offtheclockpsych.com. I'm here with Yael to introduce today's episode with Katie Milkman, where we talk about her book, How to Change. And I found there were so many useful nuggets in this episode and in Katie's book. And Yael, I'm curious what your thoughts about the episode were. Well, I loved it. And what was so fun about it was it kind of felt like it was coming full circle. We had Angela Duckworth on for our 200th episode, and she mentioned a story that had happened in the past week of going to get Katie Milkman flowers for the release of her book, How to Change. And so it was really fun to have Katie on and talking about her book. But I love the science of behavior change. And one of the things that you and Katie talked about that I thought was really fun was the idea of questioning, like how valuable are self-help books in prompting behavior change? And it got me thinking about a study in the couples field that I had read a while back that looked at what kinds of interventions do people, do couples pursue when they're struggling in their relationship. So it looked at how often do people go to marriage retreats, how often do they go to couples therapy, and how often do they just pick up a self-help book. And surprise, surprise, (laughs) the dominant thing that people do is pick up a self-help book because it's easy, it's low price, it's not hard to schedule around. And she mentioned that she and Angela Duckworth are interested in doing some kind of a large randomized control trial of self-help books that are based in science. And I think that's such a cool idea. But I think in the meantime that we can feel fairly confident that picking up books that have a scientific backing and trying out some of these interventions that have been studied in large trials and shown to work for a large percentage of people can help us to make positive changes in areas that are important to us. So to me, I think I was sort of encouraged by that conversation and and just by the kinds of books that Katie Milkman and Angela Duckworth and a lot of the authors that we have on here, because we're such uh, evidence-focused podcasts that we're trying to promote and share information with the public that has been studied and shown to work for lots of people. Right. I couldn't agree more. And one of the things I love most about doing the podcast is reading all these books. I mean, I don't know about you, but prior to the podcast, well, even still, you know, I have this like gigantic to be read pile, you know, all books I really want to dive into and just have a really hard time finding the the time to do it. But for the podcast, it's, you know, it's like homework that I need to do. And it's really allowed me to read so many books that I probably would otherwise have on my pile and not get to. And 
I personally have benefited so much from so many of these books and am still actively implementing things that I learned from, you know, Kelly McGonigal in her Joy of Movement book and Nir Ayal in his Indistractable book. And as I mentioned in the episode today, that I now floss my teeth thanks to Katie Milkman. Um, so even without the RCT, you know, we, we, I think, know even from our own personal experience that these books can be really helpful in developing our own growth and change. Have you had that experience yourself, Yael? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I've long been somebody who's interested in the self-help genre and I don't like, I will admit, I don't really like the fluffy stuff. I'm very into the evidence-backed books, but I like evidence-backed books that are fun and engaging. And I think, I mean, my sense is that all four of us co-hosts pick books and authors who have had a huge impact on the way that we live our daily lives, the way that we parent, the way that we work, the way that we approach our health, the way that we approach our relationships. And that opportunity to bring to the podcast and to bring to a large audience the kinds of ideas and practices that have helped us to grow our personal lives in positive ways and helped us to support our patients in in really powerful ways. It's just so value consistent and so vitality inducing. And so absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, I hope our listeners maybe engage in some temptation bundling. There's a little teaser with some really cool self-help books, maybe some of the ones you've heard featured right here on Psychologists Off the Clock. So enjoy this episode with Katie Milkman. Hey, everybody. It's Jill here, and I'm so excited about today's topic. If there is a quintessential Psychologists Off the Clock topic, this is it. I have Dr. Katie Milkman, who is the author of How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. Dr. Melfman is the James G. Dinan Professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, host of Charles Schwab's popular behavioral economics podcast, Choiceology, and the former president of the International Society for Judgment and Decision-Making. She is the co-founder and co-director of the Behavior Change for Good Initiative, a research center with the mission of advancing the science of lasting behavior change, whose work is being chronicled by Freakonomics Radio. Over the course of her career, she has worked with or advised dozens of organizations on how to spur positive change, including Google, the U.S. Department of Defense, the American Red Cross, 24-Hour Fitness, Walmart, and Morningstar. An award-winning scholar and teacher, Katie writes frequently about behavioral science for major media outlets such as the Washington Post, the New York Times, USA Today, and Scientific American. She earned her undergraduate degree from Princeton University, where she studied operations research and American studies, and her PhD from Harvard University, where she studied computer science and business. Katie, welcome. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So I absolutely devoured this book. I loved it. And my first thought is behavior change is so incredibly complex. I thought, how on earth is she going to get this topic into a 200-page book? And I really commend you for, I mean, you tackled a huge subject in a completely digestible way, which is not an easy thing to accomplish. Thank you. I loved the way you chose to organize the book. So you basically tackled the obstacles to change. And I thought that was so brilliant and clever because so often as humans, like we know what we want to do. We just struggle to get it done. And I think, you know, we may have lots of 
reasons that look like obstacles, like, oh, I, I just don't have enough time or, or money or whatever these external issues are, when really it's the internal obstacles, like our own thoughts and feelings that seem to most get in the way. And so in the book, you talk about impulsivity, procrastination, forgetfulness, laziness, confidence, and conformity as the main obstacles. And of course, there's no way we'll be able to get to all of those. And I really hope people buy the book to get all the, there is so much helpful information in here. But if you had to choose one of those to kind of start and talk about that, like maybe would be the most helpful for our listeners to understand or to overcome in the service of their own behavior change, where might you start? I think I would probably start with impulsivity, but I do want to just for one moment um, mention that while I really appreciate your kind words about the book, I do think it's really important to note that the book, while it focuses on internal obstacles to change, I, I would not argue that those are the only important obstacles to change. They're just the ones that I have expertise and can help control, right? You know, social inequality, you know, finance, financial resources, time, those are huge barriers to change. They're so important. I definitely don't want to say that they aren't. It's rather that I've sought to provide insight into these internal barriers where I can add value based on my research. So I just wanted to put that out there as an important caveat. Um, In terms of my my number one pick of the obstacle that might be most useful to your listeners to think about. As I said, impulsivity comes to mind because I think uh, it's so universal. It's actually quite rare to see anyone who's struggling with change and doesn't face this to some degree. And by impulsivity, I'm really talking about what academics call present bias or the tendency we have to focus more on the immediate experience we have when it comes to pursuing a goal or pursuing change and underweight the long-term benefits of that change when it comes to making our decisions. So this is true when it comes to, you know, our finances, our health, really in every walk of life, we dramatically overweight instant gratification, the instant experience and and underweight those long-term consequences is part of the reason that we end up with people who choose to smoke, even though they recognize it's really not good for your health. And, you know, people who spend when they get a paycheck on things that are, you know, shiny and bright and new, but aren't going to put them in the best financial position to deal with emergencies or ensure that they can have a secure retirement. So I think that's one of the most pernicious biases. And in terms of what we can do about it, because it stands in the way of so many goals, I actually, there's sort of two approaches you can take. One is to actually try to sweeten the experience in the moment. I call it sort of the Mary Poppins approach because she sings about a spoonful of sugar making the medicine go down. So change the, the way that you're approaching your goal. So it's actually more instantly gratifying to do the thing that is in your long-term best interest. That's approach one. And I, I'll get a little more into that in a minute if you'd like. The other approach is really the opposite. It's the stick approach. Create structures, constraints, incentives for yourself that actually increase the price of your vice so that doing the wrong thing becomes even costlier. So that even if you overweight the instant gratification, now there's instant pain that's 
<laughs> that's associated with it or such a large long-term cost that even if you underweight that, eventually it's going to come into the calculus in a more serious way. So those are kind of the two approaches at a high level. And then I'd love to get into the details on either one, whatever you think would be most interesting to your listeners. Let's do that. I, I have to say first, I'm so glad that this is what you chose because this is the thing that stuck out most to me because my co-hosts and I, you know, we're all clinical psychologists and we practice a therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy. And one of the most important aspects of this is that we look at the function and the cost of behavior. And this is exactly what you're talking about. And the way I talk about it with, with clients is, well, it works or you wouldn't do it. You know, procrastination or drinking or smoking or whatever that behavior is you're engaging in or not engaging in, I don't floss my teeth or I don't exercise. When you give yourself permission to do or not do, you get something from it. You get relief. You get, right, you you withdraw some kind of negative feeling. And so what we look at in that therapy is what is the function of this behavior? Recognize it works or you wouldn't do it in the short term, but what's the cost in the long term? And that's a huge piece of, of what we work on in therapy. So I love that that's the one that you picked. That's like perfect for, for our listeners too, most of whom are now used to us talking a lot about acceptance and commitment therapy. And I would love for you to dig in a little bit more in terms of, of what to do there rather than, I mean, you talk a little bit about the benefits of the path of least resistance, but then also what we can do to change some of these more unhelpful kinds of behaviors. Yeah. And I'm so glad that this resonates and that, that you like my top pick too. In terms of concrete steps we can take, so let me start with the, the make it fun approach. And I want to credit Ayala Fishbach of the University of Chicago and Caitlin Woolley at Cornell University for some truly brilliant research they've done on this showing a number of things. One, that most of us, when we pursue a goal, we, we focus on a path that we think will be most effective and get us there sort of fastest. A very small fraction of people instead try to approach a goal in the way that they think will be most enjoyable. So Think about, say, the goal of going to the gym and burning calories and getting fit. Most people would sort of look for the, the most direct route to that. They'd say, you know, I'm going to do the maximally punishing Stairmaster and get, <laughs> get to my goal as fast as I can. But the, a small fraction of people would approach it looking for the fun. And they might say, I'm going to go to Zumba classes with my friends. So you can see that that's a real, really different approach. What their work shows is that it's a mistake to look for the most effective route. If people are encouraged to to pursue their goal in the most fun way, they actually persist longer because the the momentary experience you have is enjoyable and that turns out to matter tremendously for persistence, far more than we appreciate. So we make this mistake. We think I just need to get there as fast as possible, as efficiently as possible. We neglect the, the importance of making the path enjoyable and then we quit sooner than we would and we don't accomplish as much as we would if we looked for fun. One way that I've specifically studied how we can make pursuing our goals more fun is through a tactic that I call temptation bundling. And the idea is really simple. If there's something that you're dreading that feels like a chore that helps you reach a long-term goal, a way to sweeten the activity is literally doing it at the same time as something else you enjoy and actually reserving the temptation you enjoy for combined use. So to be concrete, when I was struggling to get myself to exercise more regularly, I started only letting myself indulge in the entertainment I craved while I was at the gym, right? So, you know, only binge watching Bridgerton while you're on the elliptical. Otherwise, it's <laughs> off limits. 
suddenly the elliptical becomes a source of pleasure. You're looking forward to finding out what happens next. Time flies while you're at the gym. And in the case where the it's a guilty pleasure you've combined, there might be an added benefit if you're not wasting time binge watching TV in some other context where you should be, say, focusing more on family or getting work done. And it's not just about exercise, though. I think a lot of us apply temptation bundling naturally to exercise, but we can do it in other parts of life. Only listen to your favorite podcast while doing household chores. Only visit a favorite restaurant whose meals you crave, but maybe feel a little guilty uh, going there either because it's it's pricey or bad for your waistline, whichever. You only get to go there when spending time with someone you should see more of, like a difficult relative. Or you know, only allow yourself to have a glass of wine while making a homemade meal for your family, something that maybe you don't love doing but feel is important and you can give yourself a little treat while you're in the process. So those are all different examples of ways that we can bundle temptations to help make it more instantly gratifying to do whatever it is we know we should do to reach our long-term goals. And then present bias starts to work for us rather than against us. I love this idea so much. And what it made me think of, and this happened a few different times while reading the book, is I, I had the thought, oh, I'm kind of already doing that, but not consistently and not intentionally. So it made me think, oh, right. Like when I'm on the treadmill and also reading a book, I like being on the treadmill because I love to read. And, you know, some, some of these other examples too. And I thought, gosh, if I do this with a real intention and it's more of a, you know, you only get to read this book or do this activity when you're doing engaging in this other behavior that might be hard to motivate to do, that it would just increase the, the power of motivation there by so much. And I want to tell you too, I've really wanted to start flossing my teeth. And I just, I mean, I'm 48 years old and I've just never been a flosser. And I started flossing my teeth every day, but I'm not doing anything specific. So there was something about just reading this book, all about behavior change and all about the different strategies that one can implement for behavior change And I don't know if it's maybe because then I became more aware. And so, you know, just observing a behavior can cause it to change as you talk about, but I've now become an everyday flosser. That's so interesting. It's really interesting. It's funny. And it relates to my good friend and collaborator who actually wrote the forward for this book, Angela Duckworth, who's a really brilliant psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania with me. She was on, she was a guest on the podcast and was the, and she talked about you during her interview oh, and that's amazing. how we ended up reaching out to you. Yeah. <laughs> well, that makes sense. We, she, you know, she's one of my closest friends and collaborators yeah. and now it all comes full circle and makes sense. We spend a lot of time um, talking to each other about behavior change, thinking about behavior change strategies. And recently we've been talking about h- how interesting it is that, that she and I have both and many others too have written books where the goal is to communicate about science with a broad audience and help them change in various ways for the better. But we actually, even though we're scientists and we're trying to present present evidence on change, we don't have any evidence on whether or not reading these kinds of books improves outcomes for people. We've been talking about, we should run some randomized controlled trials where we evaluate whether reading these books does create change. And so it's anyway, very reassuring to hear in light of that, that you found it did create some change for you, even though it wasn't necessarily by deliberately employing a tactic, but it does hint at a couple of things that are in the book. One, as you mentioned, is awareness and sort of attention as a driver of change. And and maybe that's what happened 
Another possibility is an identity shift of some kind. So in the way you self-identify or in your belief and confidence in your ability to make a change after reading a book about it, you felt maybe more like I am the kind of person who changes because I'm reading books about the this. Obviously, you're also giving advice to others about it, but maybe, maybe the book was a catalyst in some way for that identity. And that's part of what happened. So, so many hypotheses. It's really an interesting right? information. I love the idea of doing a, an RCT on the actual efficacy of reading the book. It's a good idea. <laughs> we were talking about a random assignment trial with different books that have different philosophies and approaches and kinds of science that they advocate, right? Like Carol Dweck's Mindset, which is such yep. a powerful book. And, you know, I touch on briefly and in, in how to change. But, you know, how, how would reading that differ in terms of the tools it gives you from reading a book like Influence by Robert Cialdini, which teaches you about the tools you can use to have better social interactions and better outcomes when you are negotiating with others, for instance, or grit, like Angela's book, right. which is about, you know, building passion and perseverance versus how to change. So I think it would be really interesting to understand, do, do each of these books, do, do any of them have any effect that's positive? And right. if they do, does it depend? And, you know, what kinds of outcomes you're measuring, maybe, right. you know, mental health responds better to some exercise habits respond better to some interpersonal relationships might respond better to some. So anyway, just a I thought. love it. It's a great idea. Maybe we'll talk about it in a decade if I have results. <laughs> You'll come back on. <laughs> so you were talking about the the other way to address this impulsivity or the present bias. And is that is, is that the commitment devices? Is that where where that exactly. section was. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So the flip side of impulsivity really is procrastination. And so, you know, because of present bias, we both reach for things that are exciting in the moment and focus a lot on instant gratification, but we also tend to put off doing the things that aren't so good for us. And in terms of thinking about that flip side, there is sort of uh, another approach we can take. And that is very counterintuitive to most people. Uh, and I think it's one of the most fascinating and underused strategies that we can use to improve our own outcomes. It basically involves treating ourselves the way we're used to other people treating us who want to manage our behaviors, like a policymaker who, for instance, sets up speed limits because they know we might be tempted to speed, but it's bad for us. It's bad for other people. They're going to fine us if we don't actually follow the rules. So we're really used to having other people set rules and constraints and, and create incentives for us to behave well, but we're not so used to doing that to ourselves. And there's this large and growing literature showing when we do, it can be very powerful. So let me give you a concrete example of what I mean. One kind of constraint we can put on ourselves that, again, sounds really counterintuitive is something called a cash commitment device. A cash commitment device involves putting money on the line that you will forfeit if you fail to achieve some goal that you choose. So for instance, say you want to, I'm going to stick with exercise because we've used a couple of exercise examples. So now my mind is going there. Say you want to go to the gym more regularly. Say you want to go three times a week. You could say, I'm going to put money on the line, maybe $50. I'll get a $50 fine every week that I don't make it to the gym three times. You can declare a referee 
or actually you can even use in some cases technology to be the referee, but somebody who will be able to monitor whether you're attending the gym and maybe a personal trainer you're going to have meetings with when you're there. And then you'll forfeit money if you fail to achieve that goal and the referee reports on you. And there are various websites that actually allow you to set this up. Like stick.com is one, Beeminder is another. At, At stick, they have a clever feature where you can literally send your money to a charity you hate. So they have charitable organizations on either side of hot button issues. So say you really believe in gun control, you could send your money to the NRA or you really, you know, are, are in favor of, of, of gun rights. And so you could send your money to a a charity that is trying to work on gun control. So you pick Mm -hmm. your poison and that makes it. So now there's a, a huge price if you don't follow through on your best intentions and that. I think is a really useful tactic and not just, I think research shows is a really useful tactic for improving outcomes for the obvious reason that it aligns incentives more strongly and, and makes the present cost of your vice higher. There's one study I particularly love demonstrating the efficacy of this that was done by um, Dean Carlin and Jonathan Zinman and Xavier uh, Ginet. And what they did is they randomly assigned smokers either to just a standard program where you're encouraged to quit smoking and given some tools to use or um, that standard program plus an enhancement, which is you can put money into an account that you'll then have to forfeit six months later if you don't pass a urine test for nicotine or cotinine. And what they found is just giving people access to an account where they could stash money that would disappear, they didn't achieve their goal, increased quit rates by 30%. So it just shows you how powerful it can be when you sort of treat yourself the way a policymaker or manager parent would often treat you by setting rules and boundaries and creating fines. We can, we can actually manage our own outcomes effectively that way too. I love it. That, that it's really clever. And I, I had the thought initially when I was reading it, I thought, you know, depending on what it is, I could see being like, oh, forget it. I'll deal with not paying the $50 and because I just really don't want to exercise today. Until the part about sending it to a charity you hate, you know, that would be the thing that I'd be like, nope, nope, can't do it. This is, I got to get my butt to the gym. So I just, whoever came up with that initially, that is an extremely clever device to keep people on track. I couldn't agree more. And I think it was the founders perhaps of stick, both of whom are Uh behavioral economists Ian errors at Yale and Dean Carlin at Northwestern. So you you have them to thank for that clever innovation, I believe. And I, you know what I want to say too, this is just a slight aside, but I really noticed and appreciated the extent to which you made sure to not just, of course, cite the researchers who had done certain studies, but your assistants, your, you know, your research assistants, your graduate students. I mean, it came through so strongly in the book that how much you were making sure that credit was given where credit was due, even if they were people who are working for you or working under you. And I have never seen that in any of the, you know, many books of this nature that I've read. And I just so appreciated that. And I'm sure all of the people who are mentioned in there really appreciated it too. Thank you for saying that. Very I cool. I appreciate you appreciating it. And it yeah. was a little bit of a battle because I know it's not the norm, but I do think as a particularly, it's interesting as a, a scientist communicating about science, there's a lot of thought that goes in. I'm sure you, you think about this mm-hmm. too, right? To what are 
what are the most responsible ways to do this, especially if there's a complex topic and you need to boil it down? And what are the sort of principles I'm going to abide by? And one of the things that I decided was really important to me was making sure that it was clear who who the brilliant minds were behind the ideas. It, yeah. it often, in fact, most of the time, my mind isn't behind the ideas I'm sharing. I made some contributions, of course, that I get to write about, but I learned so much from others and wanted to make sure yeah. that I was lifting them up. And particularly there were a lot of junior scholars whose work I had the opportunity to reference and I wanted them to yeah. be credited for that. So thank you for yeah. your comments. And it's, comment. it's certainly not the norm, but it should be. And I love that, you know, you're modeling that in your book. Thank so you for great. saying that. I hope it will become the norm. In, in I do too. I do too. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. everybody, it's Jill. If you are a clinician and have been wanting to learn more about ACT, I have an upcoming full-day CE workshop through PESI called Breakthrough ACT Techniques and Experiential Exercises, a clinical roadmap to help clients overcome psychological distress. You can either join me live on Friday, October 8th from 8 to 4 Pacific time, or you can watch on demand anytime. To register, just visit my website, jillstoddard.com, and click on Learn from Jill, Conferences and Workshops. I hope to see you there. I am jumping around a little bit here, but I was immediately sucked in when I first started reading the book and you were telling a story about Andre Agassi and how he was, you know, this protege and everyone expected so much of him, but he actually ended up really kind of failing in some ways that he, he was not doing super well and worked with a coach. And, you know, the bottom line was what he learned was, you know, you can't go for the knockout every single time, but that you have to know your adversary. And I thought that this was fascinating. And I thought, you know, how do we apply knowing our adversaries to behavior changes, you know, like exercising that we've talking about, or maybe like, let's take being a more patient parent, because I thought, Sometimes my children feel like they're my adversaries <laughs> and, and I, this is probably the thing that I struggle with the most that at the end of the day, when we're all tired and it's been a long day and the two of them are fighting and I'm super irritable, you know, even when I feel irritable, I want to be able to act more patiently with them. And it's such an uphill battle. It's something I really struggle with. And I thought, Hmm, maybe of all the lessons in the book, knowing my adversary is what I, what I need to know there. Of course, they're not my adversaries, but you know, in those moments, it sort of feels like that you have to know like what you're going up against in a way. So I didn't know if you had some thoughts about that. 
It's wonderful. Yeah, it's a really interesting application. I should say I have a five and a half year old who constantly teaches me that in spite of being an expert on behavior change, I actually know very little about how to change children's behavior. Right. (laughs) Different. It's a different zone. So I I think it's a really great point. The, The message I was trying to convey with that opening story is that too often when we want to change our own behavior, we look for a one size fits all sort of solution, right? Like just set big audacious goals and everything else will follow or visualize success and everything else will follow. And that in my experience and my research, what I've seen time and again is that when we look for sort of one size fits all approaches to problems, we don't get as far as when we try to diagnose what is the underlying barrier to change and how can I strategically design a solution that addresses that issue? So I think what you're saying about understanding your adversary, I most meant it internally, but it certainly applies to understanding how to solve any complex situation. You're sort of talking about a negotiation with your children in a sense, right? And and absolutely, this is a key insight from the negotiations literature is that if you're going to if you're going to have a negotiation maybe one of the most important things you can do is do your research on who you're negotiating with what are their key goals objectives what do they value most what do they value least so that you can compromise effectively and try to find ways to sort of expand the pie and and so thinking about that with kids and applying that same lesson makes lots of sense i don't know that i do it all that well myself <laughs> um, but but to the extent that we you know we and we know this intuitively also about our interactions with other people when you recognize and sort of think about your friends and your friendships and what you expect of whom right we we have different expectations of different friends and that we we know some have certain strengths and weaknesses and part of what makes relationships work is that you start to accommodate and say okay this person's always late i'm either I'm going to cut them out of my life because that drives me crazy or I'm going to be accommodating and I'm going to expect it. And when we have an interaction, I'm just not going to worry about that. So again, knowing knowing who you're working with and what their pressure points are and um, being strategic and thoughtful about that, I think always gets us farther mm. in interpersonal interactions, just as it does when we're trying to accomplish our goals where we face internal barriers. Right. Well, and the, and the idea behind one size not fitting all you know, of course that's the case with parenting. And when I think about my two children, they could not be more different as human beings. And yet I often end up responding to them in the same way as if they're sort of one fighting unit. So I think probably, you know, recognizing the differences in them and, you know, what is it that I need to do to change rather than focusing on trying to change them? You're making me laugh. I literally just started this morning listening to an audiobook that just came out from a great science reporter called How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. And I'm really, really excited because I need some advice on this. I want to make sure it's so hard, especially when you have a little kid, not to, you know, see the some of the you know, their prefrontal cortex is not fully formed. And so right. they do these things where I'm like, 
oh my God, he's going to go to jail. This isn't going to be right, good. No. But of course, that's not right. And they're developing and understanding the science and how you can tailor your reactions and your strategies to, to best support yeah. their growth at, at these different stages where they have different challenges mm-hmm. is obviously so important. So anyway, I don't have a lot of tips yet, except that I'm, I'm, I've loved the introduction and I love the title. So well, and I, I am pretty sure that she's actually scheduled to come on to our podcast too. Amazing. I'm not sure Amazing. when, but but we're having her at some point. I'll send you the, the episode. Once, send me the episode, yeah. yeah. By then, <laughs> hopefully I'll have gotten through the entire book. I, I temptation bundle my listening. I will say, actually, well, I don't know if it's temptation bundling. It might just be bundling. But every morning when I'm getting ready, I, you know, I have one of those waterproof in the shower speakers, I get to listen to different podcasts and audiobooks so that every That's moment awesome. is used for something fun. Yes, yeah, joyful in some way. I love it. Yeah. So here's a question. I, you know, I was thinking about the fact that with large quantitative studies, it, you know, we don't know much about individual differences. Of course, there's studies that tell us maybe about predictors and things like that. So I, I found myself being curious about whether certain strategies, like, do we know from research whether certain strategies work better for some people than others? And what made me think of it, for example, is my husband is a big gamer and he got a Peloton as many people did during the pandemic and he loves it. And the thing he loves the most about it is the gamification. And, you know, I've done this many in a row and now I get a t-shirt and I got some badge and some, and I honestly could not care less about things like that. Like it does nothing for me. And I don't like riding the Peloton. I like walking at the beach where I can hear the ocean and feel the breeze and the sun and, you know, see other humans in person. So is there like, what do we know about, about that? I mean, I guess this goes back to like one size doesn't fit all in a slightly different way. Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it certainly does. It's a great observation. First of all, I should also caveat and say my training is really not as a personality psychologist at all, but rather, you know, in computer science and economics. And the way I was trained was mostly to look at average effects rather than individual differences. So yeah. at some level, I'm the worst person to answer this question. <laughs> Uh, on the other hand, I know a tiny bit about it. So just enough to be dangerous and probably say something that's slightly inaccurate. One thing I can tell you is that the research we did on temptation bundling, we did find one thing that sort of left out of the, of the data as an individual difference. And that was that it was a more useful strategy to people who had busier schedules. So maybe they needed that extra motivation, that extra tug to get to the gym with something that was fun, even more than others. And benefited more from being strategic because it was it was difficult um, to manage so many so many things. And I know there's also a literature on you know sort of goal directedness and that some people those kinds of external rewards and bells and whistles are more attractive to to some types of personalities than others. I haven't seen it explicitly linked with the intervention research I cite in the book. For instance, there was a really wonderful study that I love showing that families that were randomly assigned to either have their step count goals gamified so they could, you know, level up as a family and win awards that improved outcomes relative to families that just tracked their steps and had much more basic feedback mechanisms. 
But I don't know of any specific analyses that tried to look at personality types or family types to see differences. But I do know in general, sort of responsiveness to goals and external praise and so on, some people respond better to it than others. So what you're saying naturally follows then that if gamification is all about finding joy and the badges and the bells and whistles, that even if it works on average, it may be particularly effective for some types and that might be sort of what's lifting the average effect. And there may be some people for whom it's not as useful. Well, I think what's great about all these strategies is they're really easy to try. And so, you know, like if listeners were to buy the book and read through all these different things, you know, here's what we know about averages and big groups. So go ahead and try it and see what works for you. And there will probably be some things that are really helpful and stick, and it might just be the top one or two or three things and the rest, you know, maybe, maybe not so much, but it's like, we can all do our own little single case experiments. I think that's right. And I think another thing to keep in mind is that the principles are pretty universal, even if the tactics might Mm -hmm. be effective for different people, depending on their tastes and preferences. So the principle that it's going to be important to make it instantly gratifying to engage in the behavior that's aligned with your goals so that you'll persist that's really, you know, I don't think there's going to be individual differences that are terribly large on that. But you know, what makes it fun for you might be different than what makes it fun for me, right? So I love listening to tempting audio novels, you know, Harry Potter and the Hunger Games at the gym while I'm exercising. That's fabulous. And I love Bridgerton, but you might really prefer mystery novels or say that actually what I really like is a good reality TV show. And so it's just, you know, we have to pick what are the things that, or I like social. I want to be there with my friends. That's what does it for me. If once we understand the principle is that, you know, we make this mistake, we think that we can just push through and do it the most effective way, but instead we need to find ways to make it instantly gratifying. Then we can find our own solution based on our own tastes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you know about readiness for change and how important that is? Because this is, you know, making me think a little bit about how often people are ambivalent about change, you know, even that a lot of times it's like, well, I should exercise more or drink less or quit smoking or whatever it is. And, and really there's a part of me that really does want to do this because I know it'll be good for me, but also I really like not exercising or drinking alcohol or smoking cigarettes. You know, there's that like ambivalence and we know, you know, there's Prochaska and DiClemente have their stages of change model and talk about how you have to be at, you know, a specific stage of change to make change most likely. And I don't remember if that's initiating change or maintaining change, but do you, did you come across that in your work? Yeah, this is great. I was actually going to mention the stages of change clinical model, which I should say, you know, that's not for my discipline. Again, we're well outside, you know, this is clinical psychology, which I've learned a tiny bit about thanks to my collaborations with Angela Duckworth, who does have a lot of training in this. And I've read a few papers about the stages of change model. It's really, it's a very distinct literature from what I build on and where these interventions that I'm proposing come from. But I do think the insights in it are really interesting and important about and, and it aligns with this idea that there are there's a need to understand what are your barriers in order to fix them. And that the barriers in the stages of change model, it's pointing out that those barriers evolve as you you evolve in your journey from sort of, you know, I'm not even aware that there's a problem to I recognize it, but I'm not ready to act to, you know, initiation to, okay, now I'm working on it actively to maintenance. So the, I think even though I don't, I don't know how well that will help readers of this particular book or how effective it is to know that model. 
if you want to change your behavior. I've never seen research showing that that Mm -hmm. knowledge of that is useful. But but I think it's aligned in that I agree at different moments, we have different barriers. And you might think of that as as relating to the stages of change. In terms of your specific question, though, I want to sort of back up, you were saying, how do we even get motivated to change? And are there moments when we're not necessarily ready to begin? That is absolutely true. And I think I want to say two things about it. One, there's lots of research, or I should say a growing body of research suggesting we probably change too little in life, that we tend to be status quo biased. We tend to stick to whatever we're used to more than we probably should. There's a topic that's also been studied called escalation of commitment, where we overweight sunk costs, anything that, you know, any investment we've made that's irrecoverable in the past, you know, I've spent so much time at this job, I can't just leave it now. But But what you really want to think about is what are the costs and benefits from here on out? Whatever time you've spent, that's that's gone. You can't get it back. But would you be happier in a new role than you are in the current role? That's the key question. And we focus too much on some costs. And as a result, we change too little from from the perspective of what would be optimal. And, And there's research showing that if we allow ourselves to change a little bit more, it might increase our happiness, which is really interesting. One of the things that I write about in the book and that I've studied is that there are some moments, there are some points in time when we are more willing and open to change. And so to the extent that change, just deciding to is hard and maybe we underdo it, we we're too likely to stick to our old ways and, and not open enough to making change when it might make us happier. This concept could be useful. And those moments, I call them fresh start moments. And this is based on research I've done with Heng Chen Dai of UCLA and Jason Reese of Behavioralize, where we found that at, at moments in our lives that feel like a new beginning, where we feel like we're turning a new chapter. So we're all familiar with New Year's and the sense that that is a new beginning and lots of people make resolutions around that time. That sort of would be the canonical example. But there are lots of other fresh start moments, too, that that motivate a spike in goal pursuit that we've shown in our research. And when people are particularly nudgeable towards change, if you want to give them the tools that might help them. And those include dates like the start of a new week or the start of a new month, the celebration of a birthday. They also include making a move, you, you know, you've, you've moved to a new community, or you've gotten a promotion at work or literally a new job that that has the added benefit, not only the psychological openness to change that comes with these special dates where you can say, oh, it feels like I've turned a page, and I have a new chapter break. And I can say sort of my old failures, that was the old me before. And this is the new me and the new me can do it the new me is different. When you physically move or have a physical job change, not only do you have the psychology of a fresh start working to help you make a change that you might otherwise be hesitant to make, but your little your literal circumstances have changed and you you may have more of a blank slate to write on. So if say you wanted to change your eating habits, and you've moved, well, maybe the the donut shop that was right around the corner that was this, you know, sort of bad habit to go by. Well, it's no longer down the corner. So you truly have a blank slate to write on and it's easier to make a change for that reason as well. So anyone who's thinking about initiating change, but is hesitant to do so, sort of the two points I would say are one, we underdo it and we should know that. So try to push yourself off the ledge even more than you naturally would because all of our biases are working to prevent change instead of to promote it. And two, looking for these moments when we have this natural increase in motivation to change, these fresh starts, these chapter breaks in life, that can be a time when you're more able to motivate yourself to, to take the first steps. Well, so now I have to ask you the dreaded question that I wasn't going to ask. 
But since you brought up New Year's resolutions, (laughs) you talk in the book about how, you know, so when people say, I'm going to make this change on New Year's, these New Year's resolutions, it's a great Kickstarter for behavior change. And we also know that most people don't keep their New Year's resolutions long-term. And you said, everybody asks you this question, sort of like, oh, why bother? What's the point if we're not going to keep it? So I want to fold two questions in here. One, I kind of do want to ask that question because I loved the way you responded to it in the book. And I think it'll be natural for listeners to go, yeah, but New Year's resolutions don't work. So like, let's answer that question. And then also we're we're just about getting to the end of our time. And I did want to end on how I, I also loved the last chapter in thinking about the way you conceptualize how to maintain change. So I think these two things can kind of go hand in hand. Great. Okay. I'll try to do both hand in hand. And that's, <laughs> that's a great, great cues. Okay. So in terms of the dreaded question, <laughs> right, like, you know, why, why bother make New Year's resolutions? Because, and I do really get this every year at New Year's, I get like, I'm, I'm famous for 15 minutes every, every new year's because of my work on fresh starts and all, you know, my inbox is flooded um, <laughs> with requests for interviews from reporters who want to do their new year story and need a quote from me since I've studied this. And they always ask, yeah, why, why should we make them? Don't they all fail? And, and my, my number one answer to that is if you don't try, you can't succeed. So I'm a big fan of resolutions because if you don't make an attempt at change, you're going to get nowhere. Okay, maybe 90% of attempts at New Year's resolutions fail, but 10% succeed. That's a lot more success than if zero attempts were made. So mm-hmm. I'm a fan of whatever gets you started and change is hard. It has setbacks. I don't know that I've never seen data saying our attempts at change are any more successful at any other time of year besides New Year's. <laughs> so Great there's, point. there's nothing damning about using this particular moment to give it a shot. And then I think the the key is going to be recognize that change is hard. If we can use the best scientific tools to give us the best shot, maybe we can do better than the 90% failure rate. Maybe we can take it on 80%. And then, you know, be ready to get back up and try again, because that's a big part of success is it's, you know, it's probably not going to work the first time. And you might need to try a few things. We've talked about experimenting with the different tactics in the book to figure out what does work for you. And you can look for that next fresh start on the calendar. Maybe, you know, the start of spring or a birthday or just a Monday that is meaningful to you is going to be able to give you the next, the next attempt. I actually want to say one other thing about fresh starts before I talk about durable change, though, which I think is really important. And that is that while they're only as useful as you make them by sort of deploying other tools in combination, because just motivation won't take you very far. You now need to you know, build the scaffolding that will create durable change and use the other tools and tactics that I've described. One tool actually will take you really far. And that is if you use that temporary motivation to do something that's a one-time act, that is a really big consequential change. So let me give you a couple examples of that. And some of these might make you laugh, but the first one won't make you laugh. The first is, you know, maybe you aren't setting aside money consistently for retirement in a, in something like a 401k, a tax advantaged account. Maybe you can create an auto deduction 
from a paycheck and do that just one time and it'll happen forever after. If you use the motivation you feel at a fresh start and set that up, you never have to think about it again. And magically, good things will happen. It's a set it and forget it type solution. So when we use that temporary motivation to take an action that really has huge long-term consequences, like a snowball effect, it can be really powerful. Another example in the domain of health is there's some things that we just need to do once with huge benefits. I've been studying vaccines, right? Getting a vaccine. If you're feeling fresh start motivation, that is a thing that can really, really matter in the long run. Or here's the one that makes people giggle. Get a colonoscopy if you're overdue for one. They save lives, right? It's a one-time kind of uncomfortable procedure. But if you have that motivation, you do it once. It's not a behavior you need to be, you know, constantly feeling motivated to do. So I just want to point out that fresh starts can not only be harnessed to sort of kickstart other chains of good behavior by creating scaffolding and using tools to build, build your workout habit or, you know, figure out how to not snap at your kids. They can also be used to make one-time decisions with huge consequences. We're thrilled to be partnered with Jill Stoddard. Her fabulous book, Be Mighty, is offering a book club. And what I'm really excited about in terms of the book club is that sometimes I read books, but then I just leave it there and I never actually apply what the books teaches us. And Jill, I think your book club is an opportunity for our listeners to get a really efficient way to start putting those principles into practice. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's through a company called High Tide, and it's a four-week virtual book club that starts on the first of every month. And they're basically bite-sized skills to be able to take what you learn when you read the book and apply it in real life in a really efficient manner. That's awesome. And if you go to our sponsorship page on Psychologist Off the Clock, you can get 15% off. That's right. Just enter Be Mighty 2021 at checkout for your 15% off. The second thing I know you wanted to talk about was durability. How do we create lasting change? And as I describe in my book, I I think I was misguided for maybe the first half of my career on this topic in that, you know, I was, I was big eyed looking for a silver bullet, you know, fountain of youth style sort of cure, where if we could just find the right suite of tools to put in front of people or tactics to share with them or programming. Um, Maybe we could work with people for a month or offer them these tools for a month and sort of forever after they'd be changed for the better when it came to habits or around exercise or, you know, medication adherence or study habits or, you know, what have you. And that was really what I was looking for. And what I have discovered, and this is thanks in part to a really enlightening conversation I had with a colleague who's a medical doctor, what I've come to appreciate is that was just probably the wrong way to think about behavior change. My colleague, Kevin Volpe, who's an MD, PhD, and I were talking about a study I'd run that didn't work out the way I'd hoped, where, you know, we gave people all these tools and a program for a month, and about 33% of the behaviors that we changed in that month endured. So, you know, better than nothing, but a lot of relapse. And I was I was devastated. I said, Kevin, why isn't this lasting forever? 100% retention. And he said, you know, Katie, one thing that I think is really interesting about the way you're conceptualizing behavior change is how different it is from the way we think about treating patients with physical ailments, right? A lot of the times we a patient comes in and they have a chronic disease that they're diagnosed with, say, diabetes, and we don't put them on insulin for a month and expect it to cure them forever after, right? Some things have a cure, like 
maybe I can give you a lotion for a rash and it'll go away. But a lot of things require, you know, constant management because they're our body are, are, we're built to sort of fight against the solution and we need to constantly um, provide treatment. Why do you think behavior change should be curable rather than chronic and something that we need to manage? That was just a great aha moment because all of these barriers to change that I write about, that I've studied, none of them are curable, right? We'll always be present by us. I can't take a pill and make that go away. You know, I'll always be a bit forgetful. I will always, you know, prefer the path of least resistance. I will always struggle with confidence and challenging situations. And so if these barriers are part of human nature and not curable, then instead of thinking we need sort of a, a one month or a one time solution, I think the right way to think about behavior change and durability is thinking about tools and tactics and techniques that will help us manage and treat those barriers successfully in a way that's not burdensome, but that is, that is constant. So I wouldn't expect if I encourage someone to temptation bundle to build an exercise habit, that if they did it for a month, right, if they watch their favorite TV shows for a month at the gym, and then I took away the TV, and they're not allowed to do that anymore, suddenly they would love the gym forever after. No, it's no longer going to be fun to go to the gym right. once you stop temptation bundling. So instead, it's it's a habit that you need to build that I will continually make the gym enjoyable by linking it with something that's a pleasure. So that's kind of my philosophy on behavior change and how to make it last. And I think you know, study after study reinforces that we can create durable change so long as we're providing durable solutions. When we try to do sort of a one and done, it doesn't work very well with the rare mm-hmm. exceptions of these kinds of things that can be a set it and forget it or a one-time solution with long-term consequences. Yeah. They're skills that we have to return to again and again and again. And, you know, it's how I think about psychotherapy too. And when we're trained to do psychotherapy, it's like this many sessions and then you terminate and then you're done. And I've more recently thought about it similar to what you're saying about Dr. Volpe is, well, wait, when, if we get physically ill, we go to the doctor and we do what we need to do to get better. And then we don't go to the doctor until we get physically ill again. And then we go back to the doctor and, you know, maybe therapy should work a little bit more like that. Right. And I do have clients where, you know, I practice a short-term therapy model. I want you to be able to go out in the world and see that you're able to do this on your own without me and progress isn't linear and shit happens. And sometimes life gets really hard and your ability to practice these skills may decrease during certain points of your life. And then you can come back and we'll return and refresh and figure out how to get these skills and practices back into your daily life and how you can return to them again and again. And it's this, you know, sort of like bumpy road. I always say progress isn't linear, but as long as the slope of the line is going in the right direction, you're you're all set. And so I loved that. I think that that's such an important point to make. And it's not really the way I think we're sort of trained to think like, you know, there's this, well, I should be able to just do this thing this one time and be forever, quote unquote, fixed or changed. And that's just not reasonable or realistic. So I I really appreciated the way that you and he conceptualized that was great. Thank you. I'm glad it resonated. And what a wonderful example that you shared and and way of thinking about. So that helps me too. Well, everything resonated. And really like, I so enjoyed 
the book and I, I need to, I took so many notes. I mean, you should see, I write in, in my book and you should see it. Also, I, I, I was writing notes when you were talking about the Red Sox. And I think it was the year that we ended up winning the world series. And I, we were in grad school in Boston, I think at the same time. And there so was, yeah. So it was personally enjoyable and professionally enjoyable. And so I need to go back oh, to my so notes glad. and set an intention to sort of try out all of these different things. I'll have to figure out what's making me floss and see how long <laughs> it lasts. <laughs> yeah, um, I love that. It's wonderful. Well, I think now you have the identity as a flosser and you believe I'm a flosser. Can, so hopefully That's right. That's hopefully right. it won't fall apart. But if, if you find new barriers, then you can, you know, update your strategy. I know where to go. That's right. So, I mean, it was just, there's so much juicy stuff in here. It's so great. I, I really hope people do check out the book. Where else can people find you? I know you have your Choiceology podcast, which is awesome. So many great guests, so many great topics, really nicely produced. So Anyone who likes psychologists off the clock is going to like Choiceology. So I definitely recommend checking that out. And then where else can people find you? Thank you. My website is probably the best place to find everything from, you know, if you really want to get into the nerdiness of the papers that I write to, you know, episodes of Choiceology. I have a newsletter that you can subscribe to there called Milkman Delivers. Um, and the website is... <laughs> That's awesome. You, thank you. I, will, I should say that. I really struggled to go like to lean that far into the ridiculousness of my last name, but my students overwhelmingly insisted <laughs> when I it's gave them great. different choices. Great. Thank you. So <laughs> the website is just katymilkman.com, Katie with a Y like Katy Perry, not an IE. And it's, it's got all that good stuff there. So that's a great place to awesome. find out more. And thank you so much for having me. This was thank really you fun. for being here. I, this is, I mean, just, I love nerding out about behavior change and it's so great to talk to you. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. It was, I love nerding out about it too. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.